Episode 9 of Off Course with Claude Harmon comes to you every Wednesday. This week, Bill Harmon, my uncle, the youngest of the four Harmon brothers. If you haven't had a chance to take a listen to my dad's podcast, Butch Harmon, that was on a couple weeks ago. Really good. Check it out. Billy, along the same lines, very much an old school guy. He was always my favorite uncle, and he has lived a very, very interesting life. He's a recovering addict. He's a cancer survivor, and he is one of the best golf instructors on the planet. So it's a very interesting listen, which I think everybody will enjoy. But let's unpack last week, the Open Championship at Royal St. George's. I was there for the week inside the bubble. I think the RNA did a, a pretty good job at, at trying to manage a, a huge event with all of the COVID protocols that they're going through in the UK. But Colin Morikawa, I mean, what, what a player. Eight majors he's played in. He's won two of them. He's halfway to the career Grand Slam. He'd never played in a PGA Championship, wins at Harding Park. He'd never played in an Open Championship, wins at Royal St. George's. And he just does not miss when he's on with his irons. Um, he's got an incredible golf swing. He's not the biggest guy. He's not kind of that modern prototype that we see, you know, six foot two, six foot three. But he's just so impressive to watch the way that he plays. And when he's on, it just doesn't look like he can make mistakes. And I think that's one of the things I love the most about his his golf swing. Unbelievably repeatable. And, uh, you know, no surprise that once he had a chance to win his second major championship, he closed the door. I think a lot of people were pulling for Louis Oosthuizen, who, again, had an opportunity to get that elusive second major. Uh, I thought he was going to do it. Uh, definitely the way he was playing. He's been so close. He had a chance to win the U.S. Open out of Torrey Pines. He was in the mix and had a good chance out at Kiowa Island when Phil Mickelson won. And, you know, John Rahm made a run. Obviously, if it's a major, Brooks Kepka made a run. And it was it was a great tournament. I think the weather was fantastic. The golf course was soft. I was there in 2011, and the golf course was rock hard. It was almost impossible to keep the ball in the fairways in 2011 when Darren Clark won. You could hit the ball in the middle of the fairways and not hold it. And uh, the golf course was soft early in the week. It, it kind of firmed up going into the weekend. And I think by Sunday, the greens were much faster than they were at the beginning of the week. And I think that's obviously what the RNA had hoped for. The weather was fantastic for the UK. Short sleeves, tons of sunshine. You know, I, I heard and, and read some articles, the golf purists saying that the modern game is making a mockery of, of Lynx golf. I mean, let's be honest. If the wind doesn't blow, if the conditions aren't bad, the best golfers in the world are going to take advantage. And I think Lynx golf, especially to where the green can, the green speeds aren't nearly as fast as they are in the PGA Tour. And if they're not rock hard and the golf course isn't firm and fast, I mean, the players can only play the golf course that, that they're giving. So I don't have a problem with it. I think the best player won on the week. I think we saw some really, really good um, players come back to form. Jordan Spieth, I think Jordan will be kind of kicking himself for the finish on Saturday night because he was definitely back into the mix. And I think the game is a better place when Jordan Spieth is in the mix. It's a hell of a lot of fun to to have the microphones in the on Jordan and Michael Greller and have the announcers kind of stop talking and listen to that kind of interaction. But again, I... You just can't say enough about Colin Morikawa as a player. He is a rising star. And I think 
really the sky is the limit. I mean, you could easily see him next year winning another major, maybe even two. And I think the way that he's done it, out of all of the class that came out with all of that fanfare, he was part of that group with Matt Wolf, Victor Hovland, and Colin Morikawa. And you wondered if he was going to do it. He got his first win, and it wasn't a huge win. It was an opposite field event of the WGC, the Barracuda, and it wasn't you know a huge event, but that was his first event. And then twice a winner this year already won a WGC at concession. So he's already won a WGC. He's already won two majors. He's going to be on basically every Ryder Cup team for the next 10 years to 15 years. And he is a dominant player, moved to number three in the world. John Rahm jumps back into number one in the world over Dustin Johnson. So if you look at the top three players in the world, Dustin Johnson, John Rahm, and Colin Morikawa, I mean, that's pretty, pretty good. Bryson made headlines last week for kind of being Bryson. Brooks made headlines last week for kind of being Brooks. And that beef continues. And uh, we're going to see where that plays out. But the majors are done for 2021. And we got all four of them in, which is the opposite of what we got in 2020. So uh, I'm excited. It was a great major season. I mean, I think if you look at the winners, Hideki, if you look at Phil and then we had John Rahm, and now we've got Colin Morikawa. I think it was a fantastic major year. So hats off to everybody involved. The times are still difficult, but the RNA, I think, did a great job. And it's always it's always one of my favorite weeks of the year to get to go over and experience it. I think it is the true major champion. You see a lot of players from all over the world, a lot of different games on display, and the golf course is always, you know, unique and interesting. And, you know, it's a different test than the other three majors. So as I said, one of my favorite weeks of the year. This week's episode, Bill Harmon, as I said in earlier, he has lived a very, very interesting and a very, very unique life. And of the four sons of Claude Harmon, you had Butch Harmon, you had Craig Harmon, Dick Harmon and Bill Harmon, Bill being the youngest. And my dad always says Billy was by far the best player. A number of course records um, around the Met area. If if you ever get a chance to go to Wingfoot, his name is on the wall. And um, he has won a lot of tournaments there. And he, like I said, he was always my favorite uncle. And it's going to be really interesting, I think, for everyone to listen to his unique perspective on golf and on life. So sit back and enjoy Bill Harmon. My favorite uncle, Bill Harmon, who is the director of instruction at the Bill Harmon Performance Center in Tuscana in Palm Springs, the desert. Bill, you went to high school out in Palm Springs. It must be cool to be back and uh, living there. Well, I'm kind of a desert rat. We moved out here in 1959, and I've been living here full time for about... Uh, almost 40 years now. So I think I qualify even though I was born outside of New York City. <laughs> you played um, a lot of high school golf in Palm Springs? Yeah, yeah. I went to high school there, played all four years. I think I remember it. <laughs> it's a long time ago, H. Obviously, being in the Harmon family, the Harmon family stories get embellished. And we we hear a lot of the Harmon family stories about your your, da your dad, my dad, about all the kind of needling and the ribbing and stuff like that. But I'm always interested 
in all of the, the brothers. What were you like as a junior golfer? What kind of player were you? What did you feel like your strengths were? What do you feel like your weaknesses were? You know, looking back on it, somebody sent me a, a, an article from a Golf World magazine in 1967 where it said I, I, I was playing in an amateur tournament and I rallied the last round for, with a 66 for uh, the finished third in this big amateur tournament in California. And when I read it, the only thing I could think of was uh, how much easier golf was for me then. <laughs> because now that we have all this advances in uh, sports psychology, I didn't play with any fear. Now a 95-yard wedge shot is uh, fear-based. <laughs> so when I read that, I thought about the innocence, you know. And so I think back then we didn't have a lot of information. Uh, your dad and I were very gifted. And so the game, uh, the physical aspects of the game kind of came easy to us. And so I didn't uh, really ever have any fear. So every shot that I hit, I think I was free swinging, free wheeler. And uh, that's really not the case today at age Why 70. do you think that changes with players? Because we always hear that just Jordan Speed putts like, you know, a young mm -hmm. kid with no fear. Why do you think as golfers, as you get older and you get more information and you get more experience, it tends to kind of go the other way to where when you're young and you don't know anything, sure. you just freewheel it and you don't really have any kind of consequences in your head. And is, the more information we get as players, it's like the computer gets slower. I agree with that. I think that um, uh, the more information we have, and a lot of the information is very curious. So even if you were a really good player your way, uh, let's say you watched a George Gankus YouTube, you know, you would be inclined to experiment with some of that stuff. The danger, as you know, is uh, sometimes a pursuit of perfection ends up in disaster and you lose, let's say, your swing per se. Now, the genius of you and your dad and my dad is that you don't coach the genius out of players. And, you know, although Dustin's swing has changed quite a bit over the years, if you looked at him from across another fairway, you would know that was his swing. Right. And so I think the older players kind of uh, found their own game, then they perfected it. And, you know, the Palmers and the players and all these old players, they, they kind of own their own swing because they didn't know any different. And they didn't have anybody telling them that they couldn't be good. You know, the symmetry police showed up one day and started drawing lines on, on uh, videos. You know, you would have told, not you, but someone would have told Sam Sneed he couldn't play taking it that far inside or Trevino couldn't play taking it that far outside. So I think as we've gathered more information, a lot of players have kind of lost the, the very thing that made them real good. And as you know, as a teacher, once an artist uh, becomes a mechanic, there's no law saying he'll ever get his artistry back. So it's a very, very fine line, but there's so much information now. Do you think it's helping or do you think it's hurting? Well, that's a good question. I'd have to say for the masses, it's helped because you see more good swings and more good players. Uh, it's hard to judge how many great players we have now because for the most part, they don't win as much as, you know, the other great players of a few years ago. And the, obvious answer is, you know, there's more competition now, 
But I'm not always sure that's the answer because I see, you know, if you take uh, the Masters that Tiger won, you know, five of the best players in the world parted like the Red Sea on Sunday. (laughs) I know Tiger won the tournament, but I think to an extent, and I don't want to take any mojo off the event because it was great, but he was almost handed that tournament. I think he made one birdie on Sunday. He, uh, he, he was two shots behind, and he shot one under the back nine and one. Nicholas, you know, in 86, shot 30 right. to win by one. And they kept comparing those two. And I said, yeah, I don't know. I don't think the golf was quite the same. So I, I think there's many, many more really good players. I'm not convinced that there's many, many more really great players. I don't know if that makes sense. I mean, when you, you caddied on tour for Jay Haas for how long? Probably uh, 350 tournaments, I'd say. Okay. And so, and those, the time frame of that was from starting what year, what year and ending? Very, very first tournament I caddied in was 1978 Doral Open. And he was paired with Nicholas the first two rounds. And I believe Jack shot 135 and he was leading the tournament. He missed nine putts under six feet. And I said, boy, this guy's good. So I'd really of, never seen golf played like that. So and you so, kind of were in on tour caddying for Jay Haas in kind of the, the Jack mm-hmm. kind of still era. And yep. then the whole kind of Faldo, Norman, sure. Ray Floyd, all Watson. of that. So when, you, when you look at what those guys did and you watch golf, because I know you watch golf all the time now, mm-hmm. do, you, do you think the players – again, are, are better? Are, do you see more good shots now with all of the stuff that we know now and the technology mm-hmm. and the club fitting? Do you see more good shots when you watch golf now or did you see more back in the day? You know, that's a good question because obviously we have access to more shots now than we had. I still think the great players, it's more of an inside game. As you know, when you work with uh, Brooks Kepka, he was a prime time player in majors. And not necessarily a prime time player in other tournaments. So I don't know how you teach that. What's inside a guy that can play that good in majors. So I think I kind of go CH with something Jay Haas said one time that winners are winners. You know, Hogan and Sneed would have figured it out with this equipment. Uh, Arnold would have figured it out. Jack would have figured it out. You know, we have a handful of guys, you know, DJ's won a lot of tournaments. Uh, Justin Thomas at a young age has won a lot of tournaments. Lot. Uh, Kepka's, you know, uh, had the great major record. Jordan Spieth has had an unbelievable stretch there. But then you see guys kind of fizzle out. You know, where's Jason Day all of a sudden? He played for six months like Tiger did there for a while. But the longevity of the other guys, I think, is already in the history books. See, they've already done it. Uh, the Watsons and the Trevinos have their seven, eight, nine majors or whatever it is, Gary Player. Now, we think that Justin Thomas might win four or five. We think DJ's got four or five in them, but he hasn't won them yet. And as you know, as a teacher, these things are not easy to win. A lot of things have to go your way. And that's what I said. You know, Tiger, yeah, he won the Masters, but five of the best players in the world parted like the Red Sea on the back nine. Really was quite interesting, to be honest with you. You know, I heard you once we were talking about golf instruction and we were t- someone was talking about golf swings. And one of the things that, that's always stuck with me was something you said was, if you think of 
two of the greatest ball strikers of all time. Hale Irwin, little close stance, took it inside, came over it, hit fades, three-time U.S. Open champion. And then Trevino, open stance, take it outside, drop it underneath to hit draws. And I remember you saying, why is instructors do instructors not teach anyone to play like that? We're all trying to get everybody to swing like Adam Scott and get the golf club in the perfect position and have the face in a great position. And I'm always fascinated by some of the greatest players of all time have some of the most unorthodox swinging. Raymond Floyd, nobody, you would never teach anyone to swing like Raymond Floyd. He was one of the greatest players of all time. Why do you think that we gravitate as instructors and as golfers towards the perfection aspect of it, as opposed to looking at guys that were unbelievably functional? Because you couldn't find a more functional golf swing than Hale Irwin. I mean, just the guy didn't miss. I think um, before all the information, uh, H, uh, and you still do it, uh, your dad still does it, I do it. We looked at the ball first, and then we might have looked at video and some of the measurement stuff. But I remember my dad telling me the greatest teacher ever in the history of the game was the golf ball. But he had to figure all that stuff out without, you know, force plates and flight scope and all those things. And so I think you grew up that way. I know your dad grew up that way. And so when you watched Hale Irwin hit balls, you'd say, man, <laughs> how about this guy? I don't think I've ever told you this story, but in 67, when Trevino finished fifth or sixth at Ballastrol, that got him in the next tournament because he finished top 10. It was a Westchester Classic. And my dad, by that time, was a very ceremonial player. He'd get an invite, he'd shoot a pair of 74s and go back to Wingfoot. Well, he was paired behind Trevino the first two rounds. And the 15th hole at Westchester was a huge dog leg right around this big tree. You had to fade it. You could not hook it. For some reason, there was a weight on the tee. And this drunk guy in the gallery came up to my dad and said, this Lee Trevino is the best player in the world, best player in the world. You know, my dad didn't really say anything. And as you know, my dad had kind of eagle eyes. And so all of a sudden Trevino hits and he opens up that stance and he takes it back outside with that club face shot. And he hit the most beautiful fade you've ever seen. I'll never forget this as long as my li live. My dad turned to the drunk guy and said, you might be right. <laughs> he saw him hit one ball, one ball. And he said, you know what? You might be right. So you know what to look for. I think with all the information, great teachers still have the gift of a great eye. They can just zoom in on what needs to be addressed. Back to your granddad's teaching, you come up with one thing to change five, not five things to change one. Uh, nowadays, you know, the, the players have their teachers out there all the time. And in a way, I think that's very hard for you because you're on the spot every swing. It's no day you off. Know? Yeah, there's no, there's no swing off. So if they just came to see you at the Floridian the week before, and then they went out and played for three weeks, you know, they'd send you an occasional video, but they're on your, you know what, every swing. And you've got to be spot on and you have to be consistent with your message with all the information. If you start getting a, a, a quilt, the swing thoughts telling them the, before the first round of the masters, you might be fired by the 10th tee. Yeah, Ricky Elliott, who, you know, who caddies for Brooks, Brooks was always someone that used to like after rounds to come and hit balls. He'd hit balls whether he played good, whether he played bad. Now, a lot of that was just kind of that decompress, 
to just kind of talk us through the round. But sometimes he'd play really good and we'd be hitting shots and he'd be kind of walking us through the round. And he's been at the golf course for six hours. He's already walked 18 holes and he'd hit a couple of bad ones. And you could see him as the player go into kind of, I need to fix that mode. And it was always Ricky Elliott, the caddy. Ricky would say, listen, can we get out of here? Because you played great today. And the longer we stand here, we're going to find something to fix. And it's only going to get worse the more time we spend here. And it would always be kind of a slap in the face for us to go, yeah, well, let's get out of here. You're hitting it great. Let's just go to tomorrow and, and, and worry about what's going to happen tomorrow. Trevino told me one time that everybody had to find their own confidence. And his confidence was hitting a lot of balls. So he went out on tour, you know, and he was a prolific ball beater. And obviously he looked up to Jack and he said, I remember watching Jack come. I was hitting balls for four hours and Jack came out and he hit balls for about 15 minutes and he left. <laughs> and he thought, boy, that's kind of weird, you know? And so one day he asked Jack, he said, you know, the other day I was watching you, you came out for 15 minutes and you left. He said, well, I was hitting it good. <laughs> he said, I don't practice a lot when I'm hitting it good. I practice when I'm hitting it poorly. And so I know what, when to leave it alone. And that in itself is genius. Yeah. Because if you're hitting it good, it's hard to get off the range. Yeah, for sure. It's fun. My dad used to say the hardest thing to do is to leave the range happy. Because if you're really hitting it good, you want to hit more, see? Just keep and staying. every good player is a tinker, as you know. Every good teacher is kind of a tinker. And pretty soon you might try to correct those two bad swings that uh, BK made. And you just ruined what he did well for six hours. And people don't realize, see, I don't envy the guy that teaches the elite player. It's good when you win. But boy, you go into, you know, you miss three out of four cuts. It ain't a whole lot of fun. But all we ever see or most of the public see is when your DJ's playing good or one of the other players are playing good. But boy, when they miss three cuts, they don't see what you're going through. You know, we're like that little crab in the sand that looks out and then he goes back in the hole backwards you know <laughs> let me tell you the masters wasn't a lot of fun because you know dj missed the cut and, and you know you sit there and you're trying to figure it out and he's won there before and you know i think you're right um i think the interesting thing about you is you've had this you know amazing life and career and part of it has been golf instruction and part of it was a caddy on the pga tour mm -hmm. what do you think you learned as a caddy watching the best players in the world? I really think that the more I'm around the game, Claude, and you would know this better than I because you're around these players, I'm not. They all get good swings. Yeah. They wouldn't be on the tour, you know? So I think it's an inside game. And Jay Haas told a story recently that he had a good friend whose son went to Clemson, which is a you know, big time golf school. Sure. He wasn't good enough to make the traveling squad, so he wanted Jay to watch his son. And Jay said right away, I'm not a teacher. Okay, I, I'm a player, man. I, I don't teach. And so he hit balls for a while, and Jay said he could see within 10 balls he couldn't play. So he looked good. He could hit 300 yards, but every eight iron was 500 feet up in the air. And, you know, when it was good, it was good. But he said he couldn't play. Just he looked good to the people on the range. Finally, the kid said to him, well, what do you think, Mr. Haas? And Jay said, you know, I'm not a real smart guy. I've been playing the tour since 1976. And, I, and this was in 2019. He says, I think I've only learned one thing. And the guy said, what's that? He said, if you can't hit good shots when you're nervous and scared, none of this stuff makes any difference. <laughs> and as you know, 
BK had the ability to do, and I've said this for years, I think one of Dustin's greatest assets is, along with his God-given physical ability, he's got great nerves. Yeah. That's a gift. Well, he just doesn't think about, yeah, I've never met any, he can play Billy bad. He can shoot 75 and make a double bogey and we'll come off the golf course and he'll come out of scoring and, and I'll say, hey, you want to go hit some balls? And he'll go, no, I really didn't play that bad today. I made one bad swing on nine and hit in the water. But yeah, I mean, I'm good. I'll be fine tomorrow. And AJ, his brother, will be looking at me as he walks off and sometimes he'll go, man, it was awful today. But in DJ's mind, he's like, he, and, and the funny thing, Bill, is about DJ is no matter how bad he plays, his demeanor is the same. Never changes. Like I saw him right after he got out of all the media on Friday at Augusta. And, you know, he's just missed the cut. He's defending champion. He's the number one player in the world. And he walked up with the biggest smile on his face and said, yo, bro, what's up? And I'm like, nothing. I'm like, you okay? And he goes, yeah, man. He said, I putted so bad today. He said it was a joke how bad I putted today. I didn't really Well, you know, if you don't know the game and you don't know Augusta National, because uh, he was being tele on television there on Friday, and he had an iron shot on 15 that was a yard from being 12 feet. Yeah, and it's in the water. Back in the water. Hits an iron shot on 16 that is a yard from being stiff. Goes down the hill. So there's basically three shots on two swings that were actually good swings. But he got, there's never been a course where a foot can make more difference where a ball ends up than it does at Augusta National. So anybody that's been there and has stood in the middle of 15th fairway, when his ball was in the air, he's licking his chops. Yeah, It's going to hit, it's going to trip. We might be eight feet for eagle, but it hits and it stops and it rolls back in the, in the water. That's not a bad swing. That's not a bad shot. That's not swinging bad. That's golf. That's just sometimes that's what happens. Then he gets up on fifth, uh, 16, the hardest pin almost on the course at back right. Beautiful shot in there. Lines about 12 feet to the left of the hole, but it was six inches short or six inches, 50 footer, you know? And so when I watch the game, I see that stuff. So somebody said, what do you think happened to DJ? I said, nothing happened, really. He didn't make any putts. And I say it all the time, if the putter doesn't feel good in your hands at Augusta, you got no chance, none. If that putter doesn't feel good and the little shots around the greens, forget about it. You're not going to win. No way. You know, I, was out in, I was out in Palm Springs um, during the tournament and I came over and watched you yeah. and everything. Yeah. And one of, the, one of the things that you said that really stuck with me and, and you were working with this guy and you know, he was probably a 15, 20 handicapper mm -hmm. and he hit this shot. And he thought it was a terrible shot. And you said, and, and, and it, honestly, Bill, I've, I've thought about this a lot in all of my lessons, and I've been using it, um, giving you all the credit, obviously. Um, and you said, <laughs> you know what? That wasn't a bad swing. And the guy said, well, what do you mean? And you said, there's three types of swings, three types of shot. There's a good shot. There's a good enough shot. And there's a bad shot. And yeah. you said, that was good enough. It wasn't great. But it was certainly a good enough swing. It wasn't bad. And I, I think, think that is so true. And I, I'll tell you where I, I kind of learned it from my dad early on. But uh, Pia Nielsen and Lynn Marriott from Vision yep. 54, they, they preach that. Those are the three shots you hit. And you play and I play. So if I hit a thin seven iron, it goes on the green 30 feet. My instincts were that that was a bad shot. It wasn't a bad shot. It just wasn't a great shot. But it was good enough. 
And I'm not good enough that I ruin rounds with pars, you know? <laughs> so I get that ball and I two putt and I get the hell out of Dodge, you know? And so I think by nature, we always compare ourselves to really good shots, great shots. But how many of those do we really hit? You know, the, the average player might hit five around more, you know, Dustin's different or the guys that you teach, but by and large, um, that's where I think the inside game, uh, the great players have a way, uh, some, some of them get hot, but they use it to get better. Some get hot and they defeat themselves. Those aren't the good ones. Some just accept it. You know, DJ just hits it and accepts it. Uh, BK has a little bit of that look to him where he, uh, I don't think he wants you to know that it might bother him. So his body language is good. Nicholas never acted, you know, like it was him. You Trevino know? never acted like it was yeah, him. Yeah, so I think when you watch the really great ones, their body language is, uh, it was like Shoffley's shot on 16. Somebody asked me yesterday, well, that was a terrible shot. I said, it wasn't a terrible shot. If you w looked at him, his body language was like he hit it good. And he said, afterwards, I flushed it. I misjudged the win. Now, he's not going to lie about that. If no. he fat hooked it in the water, he'd have said, oh, man, that was a terrible swing, you know. But he said, boy, we thought it was down and, and left to right, and the ball hit the wall, and, and there you go. And, but that happens at Augusta. It isn't always a bad swing. Sometimes a bad result. They asked Pete Carroll that, that interception there to lose the Super Bowl. Was that the worst play call you ever had? He said, no, it was the worst result of a play call. Ever. <laughs> <laughs> it was a good play call. The guy made a better play, you know. <laughs> so you've been, you know, at, at, at this stage of your life, you've been around the game of golf your entire life. And in 2021, what, is the th what are the things that you still love about the game? And what are the things currently that you don't like about the game? Well, I remember my brother Dick said that uh, he, he mentioned one thing about me, my dad. He said, I never met anybody that loved the game and the people who played it more than dad did. So I was uh, giving a guy a lesson yesterday and hit three of his friends in the teaching center. And we were laughing and scratching and they were needling this guy. And at the end of the lesson, I said, you know, this was like the best hour I've ever had, because this really is what golf is. Not at the highest level, let's say, but the relationships and the people. Uh, what I don't like about golf today at the professional level, to be very candid, I'm tired of watching every hole being a drive and a wedge. Yeah. And every par five a drive and a six iron. And so 25 under doesn't do much for me anymore. And I know how good they are. And I'm not, I'm not knocking the players. They're not setting the course up. But I liked Wingfoot better. And as long as that was, it played short. Yeah, it did. But you had to perform every swing, you know, every single swing. And eventually it wore people down, which is what it should do. And so um, I just don't get off on the 25 and 30 unders uh, as much as uh, and I know I'm think, kind of an old guy, an old school, because I do appreciate how good they are. You know, you wouldn't know this, but the best shot I saw last year was the second ball that uh, Dustin hit in the practice round off of 10 West at Wingfoot. That four or five iron into a 20 mile prior left to right win about three feet from the hole. And he hit it low and he carried it that far. I wouldn't have cared if it would have been 40 feet from the hole. I never saw a golf ball hit like that. And as you know, the really great players, and I knew this, saw this when I caddied, 
whenever we played with a superstar, Seve, Watson, Trevino, Jack, every round, whether Jay beat them that round or not, or Tiger, they would hit a shot that you knew, the player knew he couldn't hit. He didn't have the power, the swing, the leverage, or whatever all that stuff is. That, and Jay used to always joke when Jack or Tiger would hit a shot like that, he'd turn to me and go, how about that shot? You know, And that was his way of, uh, I give. <laughs> I can't do that. You know, So the great ones, uh, like Dustin, he had a handful of shots and it was just a practice swing round that I, I just... Uh, turned to Mike Gilmore, the pro, and I said, basically, like, Jay, how about that shot? You know, who can do that? How many people can really do that? Handful, maybe. When we talk about players on the PJ Tour, again, I think you had a ringside seat as a caddy. How has the role of the PGA Tour caddy changed from when you were doing it to where it is now? Do you like the direction it's go- it's gone? What's your view on that? Because, I mean, you were part of the old guard of you know, caddying and, and now, I mean, do you think the caddies are too involved? I think it's a generational thing. I think that most of the players today grew up with coaches as junior players. So they're used to it. Back in the, in the days that I started, you know, they might've had a pro back home that, you know, they'd come back for a week and they'd say, move it up in your stance an inch and the guy'd go play good. So the players weren't as dependent back then only because they didn't have a coach all the time. So now I think we're about maybe two generations of players that grew up with coaches since they're eight years old. So now the caddy has become a form of a coach out there with all the information. So I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing because they don't know any different. Um, I will say this, though, and it's probably not going to answer your question. I really miss, when I caddied, there were probably 50 African-American caddies. And I can't tell you how I miss them. Their humor, they were the fabric of the tour. They were characters extraordinaire. And uh, I grew up in an era, even at country clubs, you had a lot of characters. Now the high-end clubs are so good, everybody that works there has to be perfect. You know, it's kind of taken the personality out of it. So I was telling someone the other day, I was telling stories about Mitch, Killer Sam and all these guys and Seymour and Walter, you know, and we were laughing so hard. And uh, when I caddied in President's Cup or Ryder Cups later, which were tremendous thrills for me, and it was fun and it was great and they were all good guys, but they didn't really have, uh, Jackie Burke once said that the greatest humor comes from pain and poverty because humor is used to how you defend yourself from it. So I miss that a lot, oddly enough. And uh, I don't know if they were better or worse caddies. I don't really, you know, let's face it. If the player's no good, it doesn't make any difference. <laughs> the caddy is. No, I'm telling you, this is, here's the deal to me. Good caddy, bad player, still a bad player. Okay. Good player, bad caddy. Still a good player. (laughs) Good player, good caddy, slightly better player. So the best thing a caddy can do is get a good player. (laughs) It is true, though. You know, I mean, I caddied real good for Jay when he drove it good and hit good irons and putted good. See, but I'm the guy that caddied for Mike Donnell in his first Masters. He shot 64-82. 
Now, I didn't change a lot that night. <laughs> you know, and you know as a coach, you've had players shoot 63, 75. You didn't change overnight. You know, my dad always says that, you know, from – and you could say this with caddies and, and coaches as well. He always says that when players play really well, he always thinks the coach gets too much of the credit. And when they play poorly, the coach gets too much of the sure. blame. He yeah, said somewhere it's – quarterback it's, almost – it's it's in the middle. Did the older generation of players, when you were out there, Bill, did they did they talk to the caddies as much as we see the players do now? That kind of did Nicholas no. talk to Angelo and ask him his opinion and ask him for no. He never asked Angelo anything except yardages. And uh, Angelo was one of the few caddies that had to go out every day and walk the pins, even though they had pin sheets. And he ended up getting fired because of it because he didn't walk it one time at Pinehurst. I never heard Jack asked for help on a club uh, player was totally against asking the caddy. No, they didn't ask nearly as much. It, it was, uh, now it's like an encounter group, you know, on a 57 yard wedge shot, you know, but it, once again, I don't blame anybody for that because it's the information age. And these kids, since they were in uh, 16 years old, are driving down the road. Hey, let's get coffee. The guy, pumps in a Starbucks in his phone, you go get coffee in the next exit. So it's a different era. And I'm not one that blames this stuff. I observe it. But how could a young man today not have a coach, not have a caddy that's giving you all the information? Because everybody, but there were a lot of players back then that were noted to be really, really hard on caddies. Really hard on them. Last thing. No, they weren't talking a lot going down the fairways unless the the player was grilling the guy. <laughs> Last thing I wanted to talk about, Bill, um, at 65, you're diagnosed with throat cancer. Um, you know, there was a time where it was, it was pretty bleak for, for you and for all of us around you. What did that experience kind of teach you? How did you get through it? Um, what, have you, what have you learned now that you've come out to the other end? Well, at the time that it had, had happened, I was in a great place in, in my life. You know, I'm a recovering drunk and uh, cokehead. So let's see, at that point, I was um, maybe 24 years clean and sober. So I had a, um, a map or a blueprint of how to live one day at a time. And so um, once I got over the fear of the treatment, I wasn't as fearful of the cancer as the treatment's very difficult. And they tell you it's going to be difficult. So you wonder if you have what it takes. And um, so a lot of people will ask me that question. And I wouldn't say it changed me dramatically. It, it enhanced the path I was on. And uh, two days ago was my five years from being diagnosed. And I still process uh, this journey on a daily basis because in those five years, I know a lot of people that have passed away from cancer. So I realized how lucky I am. And my last trip to MD Anderson, um, they found a spot on my liver. They did, I had to do an MRI and I was in there and everything was pounding around, you know, if you've had an MRI. And on a scale of one to a hundred, I might've been nervous one. And I said, you know, in two hours, they're gonna tell me whether I got cancer or not again. And I said, hell, I've, I've been through it, you know. I got past it. Maybe I won't get past it this time if it is, but I'd already gotten five years, great years. So I'm pretty cool about gratitude. I try to live my life with gratitude, really. That's what my fuel, humor and gratitude are my 
fuels. So it's just made me want to um, do a few more things in my life, I would say. And then actually, oddly enough, none of them have to do with golf, just experience some more different things. I like to hike. My wife and I like to hike, so we go to different hiking places. So I have a list of things I want to do. Uh, but more, I would say, just be grateful for the day that you have, because a lot of people don't make it. I know people that I was in those rooms where that didn't make it. So I don't know why I was chosen. First good break I ever had being one of the four Harmon brothers just wasn't enough, Bob. <laughs> Very few people have been luckier than me, I'll tell you that much. So, and I look at my life that way. You know, and when I saw you at Wingfoot, I told you how much it meant for me to be there, because that's where it all started. This crazy thing called the Harmons, whatever the hell that thing's grown into be, is it pretty weird? And now look at you. Yeah. You know, I've, I've been lucky too. So yeah, we uh, both have. Yeah. We're lucky to have golf in our life. Absolutely, and I think um, you. you know, and I, I think your outlook on things, you know, as difficult as certain times of your life has been, is I've always been, you know, it's always been amazing to me how you've managed to stay as positive and, and think. Well, forward. you and I've had a lot of nice discussions because um, you and I don't, we allow ourselves to be vulnerable to each other and be real, you know, and I, and I think more people would, would, would live better lives if they admitted that they had issues because everybody has them. Just most people are spending too much time trying to disguise that they have them, you know, and they're wasting time because, you know, there's a lot of life to be enjoyed. Just got to, suit up and show up and just get a little better every day it's kind of like the golfer if it gets a little better every day why don't you do that in your personal life that's what i try to do and most days i do it then some days the old bill shows up and i get what i deserve well thank you i really appreciate the chat and uh, always great to talk to you so that was bill Harmon, and i think anybody listening um as i said in the opening he has lived a very, very unique life, and he, he is somebody that I, I stay in touch with on a regular basis. He has taught me that it's kind of okay to kind of be real, and you know I've learned as much um, from Billy as I, I think I've, I've learned from lots of people, so um, always great to hear his perspective. So questions this week. Divot pattern on the range. I think sometimes when we look at divot patterns, you know, the direction of the divot, you know, can sometimes fool you. I mean, sometimes you can hit, you know, obviously if you're trying to hit a fade, a lot of DJ shots kind of go to the, you know, his divots kind of point to the left. I think one of the things that divots tell you a lot about players is whether you're a picker or whether you're a digger and whether you are a divot taker. Obviously someone, you know, we have seen players that take massive, massive divots and then we see other players that don't really take a lot of divots. So yeah, I mean, you know, from a divot pattern standpoint, you want to make sure that you're trying to catch the golf ball first and the divot is in front of the golf ball. The dreaded bad divot is the fat one where you're hitting the ground first and then the ball. So, you know, one of the great drills that I like to do is, you know, if you're if you've got an iron in your hand, go ahead and take a, a tee and put it in the ground right in front of your golf ball. And then your goal with an iron is to be able to hit your shot. So you're going to be catching the ball first. And then the tee should move. The tee should be in a perfect world. The tee would fly up into the air because that's meaning that you're hitting down on the golf ball and you've got that good angle of attack. If you are 
you know, finding that your divot pattern is too deep, then, you know, trying to get to where you can feel like you shallow everything out, trying to feel like, you know, maybe your head doesn't go down so much. And, you know, I think that's important as well. Let's see, what else do we got? Talk about the diet of golfers. You know, I travel a lot with um, DJ and when we're on the road, obviously it's an, you know, an enormous luxury, but DJ is like travels with his own chef, Chef Mike. And, you know, he's constantly kind of figuring out the kind of food intake that DJ is going to have. He fills us up, you know, with a lot in the morning, you know, that kind of sustains us. And, um, you know, DJ doesn't like to eat, uh, you know, a ton of red meat. So a lot of chicken, a lot of fish. I think a lot of players now are starting. And I think a lot of this happened with, you know, that kind of, you know, upper echelon player, the pandemic, instead of staying in hotels last year, a lot of guys during COVID were renting houses and sharing houses. A chef that used to work for my club, the Floridian chef, um, Chef Parker, he used to to go on the road with Brooks when I worked with Brooks. And now he pretty much, you know, travels every week with Jordan or Ricky or Justin Thomas and stuff. And and I think, you know, the diet of players has changed a lot as well. I mean, I think, I mean, I think everybody has cheat days and, and takes days off and eats, you know, badly. But I see more players now spending a lot more time on new, you know, taking nutrition seriously, you know, I think it's, you know, important. So, uh, practice round. I mean, today is a good example. You know, DJ got to the golf course, did some work, kind of went through his routine practice round. We played nine and then we did kind of a whiskey route. We did 10, 11, 12, and then the 18th hole here right back because he had some stuff to do. Tomorrow he's going to play. It's a nine-hole pro-am here at the 3M this week, so he's going to play nine holes. So a lot of the guys, if they're in the pro-am, if it's an 18-hole pro-am, they know that they're going to get all 18 holes on Wednesday. So maybe they get there on Tuesday and play nine because they don't need to get there on Monday. So today DJ is going to play nine holes in the pro-am and that's going to be off the back nine. So today he wanted to get out and touch the front nine and kind of take a look. A lot of chipping. I mean, last week I think is a great practice round prep. We we did, I think a lot of players were spending a lot of time around the greens. If you, ha- it's, it's course dependent, you know, practice rounds, getting ready for tournaments. If there are a lot of runoff areas, what type of shots are you going to have to get? So obviously last week, Lynx golf, a lot of different ways to play shots. Are you going to take eight irons? You're going to take wedges, very different. Whereas this week, there's a lot of rough around. The green complexes aren't nearly what they were last week at the Open Championship. So more so chipping around the greens with more lofted clubs, sand wedges, lob wedges, but and again, practice rounds, the greens this week are probably two to three feet faster. I mean, one of the things that DJ remarked this morning is when he got on the putting green here at the 3M and he had a putt that was breaking, you know, he was trying to practice a little right to lefter from about five feet and he hit the first one and then it went six feet um, past. He was like, wow, these greens are much, much faster than, than we had last week at the Open Championship. He's like, I'm going to have to play a lot more break than I was playing last week. So he spent a good amount of time before he started his warm-up and his practice session on the range on the putting green, probably about, I'd say almost about 45 minutes of putting because he was just trying to get the speed because the green speeds are going to be so, so different than what they are last week. And I think week in and week out, I think everything is kind of, you know, changing. So, 
you know, when you're playing practice rounds, trying to figure out, you know, where you're going to miss it, where they're going to put pins, you know, it's a practice round. You're going out and practicing. You're not worried so much about a score. Sometimes guys in practice rounds on tour will play games, you know, to put a little kind of, you know, money on the line and get a little bit of the juices flowing. But it's always interesting to kind of walk around and see how everybody approaches practice rounds. The way a guy like Phil Mickelson approaches a practice round is going to be very, very different than the way someone like a Rory McIlroy approaches a practice round. The way a Justin Thomas approaches a practice round is going to be incredibly different than the way someone like Bryson DeChambeau is going to, you know, approach a practice round. So practice rounds are unique to players. So um, that's kind of, you know, one of the cool things about the game. Lots of episodes. Um, like I said, this is episode nine. Don't forget to go back and take a listen to any of the ones that you may have missed. Chris Como was last week, which I thought was really fantastic. Week before that, Justin Parsons, whose student Louis Oosthuizen had a chance to win last week. So check it out. So next week on Off Course with Claude Harmon, joined by putting guru extraordinaire Phil Kenyon. He is a putting guru, one of the best putting gurus on the PGA Tour. He works with a number of players, Gary Woodland, Justin Rose, um, lives over in the UK, and I think he's one of the best guys with putting and really, really looking forward to hearing what he has to say and picking his brain. If you are struggling with your putting, next week is not going to be an episode of the podcast that you are going to want to miss. 